Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Whole Shots Podcast. Hello again, and welcome to another Horror Shots Podcast with me, Casey. Now, the last couple of weeks have been going over a lot of Halloween-oriented things, starting with Samane, or Samween, or Soween. Again, the pronunciation varies depending on the dialect being used. And then last week, we went over the more traditional definition of Halloween, thanks to the History Channel. Now, this week, it's a little bit different. It's still going to look into the history of things, but not in the traditional sense No, it's going to be a little bit more geared towards media and how Halloween has inspired countless films. So today, we're going to look at the history of horror movies, particularly slasher flicks. Now, before I get into that entirely, there's always that fun little housekeeping piece to do at the beginning. As always, check my website at horrorshots.com to check out some pretty nifty horror photography, if I do say so myself, toot my own horn a little bit. But, you know, I think it's worthwhile, and if you like horror, you should like the horror photography. I just added a new bit having to do with scarecrows. Made the whole thing myself, did the mask, the effects, the blood, all that sort of stuff. Made it all myself. So I'm, I'm kind of proud of that one. It's a really interesting shoot, and it was really fun to do as well. Also, I'm still running that contest. You know, I said the first person to email me, or hit me up or contact me in any sort of way, will get a free print of anything they desire on the website. Nobody took that up. So that's still open. As opposed to being the first one, because I think that's kind of limiting. I think a lot of people get turned off when they see or hear, you know, the first person to call in. Nobody's going to be the first. So they just say, ah, screw it. I'm not going to do it. So I'll run this for a whole week, and I'll pick a random person who messages me on either Instagram at Photography on Twitter at HorrorShotsPod, through email at HorrorShotsPodcast at gmail.com, or through the contact form at HorrorShots.com as well. I really want to give away some stuff, so let's do this. Furthermore, if you are in the Toronto area in the first weekend of November, so that's the weekend of November 4th, be sure to check out Horrorama, which is where I will be. I'll be selling some prints, talking to people, and if you're a fan of the show, swing on by, you get a discount. Gonna throw that out there right now. You get a discount on whatever merch I've got there, 10%, whatever. We'll make it up as we go along. But you'll get something if you mention you heard the podcast and you're a fan of the podcast. Because that's what I want to do. I want to meet you. You listen to me every week. I have no idea who's listening back. I want to know who it is. And I want to interact with you. I want to see you, meet you in person. It'll be really, really cool, in my opinion, anyway. But what do you say we get on to the podcast at hand Today, like I said, we're looking at slasher flicks and horror flicks in general, but mostly slasher flicks. I'm going to probably do this for a couple more weeks and jump between the sub-genres. Now, when you think slasher flick, most people automatically think Friday the 13th. They think Jason Voorhees. And then probably after that, it jumps to Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street. And then trailing far behind, well, maybe not far behind, but trailing a little bit farther behind would be Michael Myers. Ironically enough, Michael Myers is probably the one who put the slasher franchise or the slasher genre on the map. But was it the first slasher flick? 
I don't think so. Despite it being very popular and showing that an indie film can be profitable, especially with a limited budget and a very simplistic story, it can still be a profitable cinematic adventure both for critics and for audiences alike. But there are movies that predate Halloween in 1978, movies such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I would classify as most likely a slasher flick. I mean, if it's not, then what is it? But what is a slasher flick? Let's just start right there. One definition I've read is a slasher film is a film in the subgenre of horror films involving a violent psychopath stalking and murdering a group of people, usually by use of bladed tools. Although the term slasher is often used informally as a generic term for any horror film involving murder, film analysts cite an established set of characteristics in which these films are apart from other subgenres such as splatter films and psychological thrillers. Critics cite the Italian Gailo films as a psychological thriller film such as Peeping Tom and Psycho as early influences. The genre hit its peak between 1978 and 1984 in an era referred to as the golden age of slasher films. The notable slasher films include The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, Halloween in 1978, Friday the 13th in 1980, A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984, and Child's Play in 1988, kind of rounding out that golden age. Then there was a bit of a lull, wasn't there? After, say, Child's Play in the early 90s, I think 92 is when the second Child's Play came out, there wasn't a whole lot going on. Slasher films seem to have fallen off the face of the earth. That is until, I would say, Wes Craven decided to have a spin or have his own take on the original slasher franchise or subgenre. Of course, he invented Freddy, which was again sort of like inventing or reinventing the genre. After all, Freddy wasn't anything like any of the other slashers out there, was he? He wasn't like Jason. He wasn't like Michael Myers. He spoke. He had personality. And he wasn't ethereal. He was in your dreams. He was a dream demon, for Christ's sake. And then he did it again. Wes Craven came out with Scream in 96, which sprung a whole new class of slasher films from I Know What You Did Last Summer to Urban Legends. The mid-90s was just ripe, full of these teen slasher flicks, and audiences ate them up. To be fair, they were quite interesting, and I found them very mind-numbingly entertaining. You didn't have to think through them. You didn't have to do anything except watch. Yeah, they tried to throw a twist or two at you, and granted, they were okay. I mean, Scream's twist was pretty good. I know what you did last summer had a decent twist as well, but you knew something was coming. It just was different. It wasn't a silent killer lurking the nights in a mask and a blade. Something more. Again, these killers had personalities. You got to know them as characters before they had the infamous heel turn. Now, while at the time these films may or may not have had a huge audience or a huge commercial success, except for maybe Halloween, which I'm still not positive is a huge commercial success. It just had a great profit because it only had a budget of like $16,000 at the time and it made a few million in the box office. Today that wouldn't be classified as great but it's still a profit. A profit's a profit, right? But it's the lasting effect that these movies have on culture and popular culture in general. Think about it. 
Have you ever met a horror fan? They are diehard. They have their favorite movies, and they are living their lives by these tropes and these plots and these characters. The cult following is real, and these people absolutely cannot get enough of their favorite horror killer, their favorite slasher, or their favorite movie, place, setting, theme, whatever. They're diehard, and that's what horror breeds, in my opinion. Now, there are also some definitions that define what a slasher film is and what sort of separates it from any other horror movie, like a psychological thriller or a supernatural horror. These are very specific things that slasher films have done over the years, and if you saw Scream 1, they go over a lot of them in detail. So this website here has the definition of a slasher film as a slasher film adheres to a specific formula. A past wrongful action causes severe trauma that is reinforced by a commemoration or anniversary that reactivates or re-inspires the killer. It's built around stock and murder sequences. The films draw upon the audience's feeling of catharsis, recreation, and displacement, and usually it's related to sexual pleasure as well. It's fair enough. Some common tropes, again listed on this website here, are the final girl trope, and it's discussed in film studies as being a young woman, occasionally a young man, left alone to face the killer's advances in the movie's end. Laurie Strode is the heroine of Halloween, and she is the typical example of a final girl. Final girls are often, like Laurie Strode, virgins amongst sexually active teens. Furthermore, several slasher film villains grew to take on anti-heroic characteristics, with the franchise following the continued efforts of a villain rather than the killer's victims such as Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Chucky, and Leatherface. The Scream films, again, is a little bit different. While following the same sort of motive or the same sort of antics as the original film, the killers are different in each. So that one is a rare example where you focus more on the victim or the survivor in the case of Sidney Prescott rather than the killer who kind of changes faces, so to speak, the ghost-faced killer. I also believe that the Hellraiser franchise followed the Survivor through the first two movies anyway, and Halloween did follow Laurie Strode through at least two, mentioned her in a couple other ones, and then Halloween H2O, she was kind of the main point again, and that brings us back to the sequel that's coming out in just a few weeks, where she is once again the main protagonist. And now that we got the tropes and the sort of definition of what a slasher film is out of the way... What are the exact origins? Well, we can probably even attribute this to ancient times, with ancient Rome coming into play. People have loved watching violent acts for thousands of years, like I said, dating back to ancient Rome. But it wasn't until the late 19th century where horror as a whole became sort of a thing and marketable. There were plays that were produced. At the Grand Guinal, Maurice Tourneur's the lunatics used visceral violence to attract the Gwinnall's audience. Films like this eventually led to public outcry in the United States, eventually passing the Hayes Code in 1930. The Hayes Code is one of the entertainment industry's earliest set of guidelines restricting sexuality and violence deemed unacceptable. Crime writer Mary Roberts Reinhard influenced horror literature with her novel, 
The Circular Staircase in 1908, and adapted into his silent film The Bat in 1926, with the story revolving around a masked killer menacing guests in a mansion. Its success led to a series of old dark house films, including The Cat and the Canary, based on John Willard's 1922 stage play, and Universal Pictures' The Old Dark House, based on the novel by J.B. Presley. In both films, town dwellers are pitted against strange country folk, a recurring theme later in horror films. Along with the Mad Men on the Loose plotline, these films employed several influences upon the slasher genre, such as lengthy point-of-view shots and a Sins of the Father catalyst to propel the plot's mayhem. George Archambaud's Thirteen Women in 1932 tells the story of a sorority whose former members are set against one another by a vengeful peer who crosses out their yearbook photos, a device used in subsequent films, Prom Night, and Graduation Day in 1980 and 1981. Early examples include Maniac Seeking Revenge in The Terror, based on the play by Edgar Wallace. B-movie mogul Val Luton produced The Leopard Man in 1943 about a murderer framing his crimes against women on an escaped show Leopard. Basil Rathbone's The Scarlet Claw sees Sherlock Holmes investigate murders committed with a five-pronged garden weeder that the killer would raise in the air and bring down on the victim repeatedly, an editing technique that became familiar in the genre. Robert Sidemax, The Spiral Staircase in 1946, based on Ethel White's novel, Some Must Watch, stars Ethel Barrymore as a sympathetic woman trying to survive black-gloved killers. The Spiral Staircase also features an early use of jump scares. British writer Agatha Christie's particularly influential 1939 novel, Ten Little Indians, adapted in 1945 as And Then There Were None, centers on a group of people with secret pasts, who are killed one by one on an isolated island. Each of the murders mirrors a verse from a nursery rhyme, merging the themes of childhood innocence and vengeful murder. House of Wax in 1953, The Bad Seed in 1956, Screaming Mimi in 1958, Jack the Ripper of 1959, and Cover Girl Killer of 1959 all incorporated Christie's literary themes. Now we get into the 1960s horror thrillers. And trust me, these are all leading up to more slasher-orientated things. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960 used visuals that had been deemed unacceptable by movie studios, including scenes of violence, sexuality, and even the shot of a toilet flushing. That same year, Michael Powell released Peeping Tom showing the killer's perspective as he murders women to photograph their dying expressions. Psycho was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Janet Leigh and Anthony Perkins garnering universal acclaim for his role as Norman Bates. This notice drew bankable movie stars to horror films. Joan Crawford starred in William Castle's Straight Jacket in 1964 and Jim O'Connolly's Berserk in 1967 while Albert Finney starred in MGM's Night Must Fall in 1964, which was a remake of a 1937 film, and Peter Cushing starred in Corruption in 1968. Hammer Studios, a London-based company, followed Psycho's success with Taste of Fear in 1961, Maniac in 1963, 
Nightmare in 1964, Fanatic in 1965, The Nanny in 1965 as well, and Hysteria in 1965 before climaxing with Crescendo in 1970. Hammer's revival amicus had Robert Bloch, author of 1959 psycho novel, write the script for Psychopath in 1968. Francis Ford Coppola's debut, Dementia 13, in 1963, takes place in an Irish castle where relatives gather to commemorate a family death but are murdered one by one. Greatly influenced by the Italian Gilo thrillers of the 1970s, William Castle's Homicidal in 1961 features gore in its murder scene, something that both Psycho and Peeping Tom had edited out. Richard Hilliard's Violent Midnight in 1963 showed a black glove killer's point of view as they pulled down a branch to watch a victim, and also featured a skinny-dipping scene. Crown Intentional's Terrified, 1963, features a masked killer as well. And lastly, Spain's The House That Screamed in 1969 features violent murders and preempted later campus-based slashers. Now, what might be the absolute precursor to slasher films is something called an exploitation film. Now, what's that? I'm glad you asked, because I'm about to go over a huge paragraph here about that. The early 1970s saw an increase in exploitation films that lured audiences to grindhouses and drive-ins by advertising sex and violence. Robert Fuest's And Soon the Darkness set off the 1970s exploitation wave by maximizing its small budget and taking place in daylight, and overtly distancing from gothic 1960s horror. Fright in 1971 is based on the Babysitter and the Man Upstairs urban legend. While Tower of Evil in 1972 features careless partying teens murdered in a remote island lighthouse. Pete Walker broke taboos by advertising his film's negative reviews to attract viewers looking for the depraved, using a no-press-is-bad-press mantra. With The Flesh and Blood Show in 1972, Frightmare in 1974, House of Mortal Sin in 1976, Schizo in 1976 as well, and The Comeback in 1978. All those had horrible reviews and they were advertised as such. Drew audiences like mad. Other filmmakers followed Walker's lead as posters dubbed Blood and Lace as the sickest PG-rated movie ever made, while Scream Bloody Murder in 1973 called itself a gornography. By 1974, the exploitation film battled political correctness and their popularity waned, and while films like The Love Butcher 1975 and The Redeemer Son of Satan in 1976 were accused of promoting bigotry, the micro-budget independent film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974 became a major hit and the most commercially successful horror film since The Exorcist. The story concerns a violent clash of cultures and ideals between the counterculture and the traditional conservative values, with the film's squealing antagonist Leatherface carrying a chainsaw and wearing the faces of the victims he and his family eat. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre spawned imitators, and its false, based-on-a-true-story advertisement gave way to reenactments of true crime. The town that dreaded sundown in 1976 was based on the Phantom Killer case, and Another Son of Sam in 1977 based on the Son of Sam slayings. 
and it cashed in on headlines and public fascinations. Wes Craven then modernized the Sonny Beans legend in The Hills Have Eyes in 1977 by building upon themes present in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Hills Have Eyes was another huge financial success, relaunching Craven's career after it had been damaged by the controversy surrounding his previous film, The Last House on the Left, in 1972. Following holiday-themed exploitation films, such as Home for the Holidays in 1972, All Through the House in 1972 as well, and Silent Night, Bloody Night in 1973, followed by Black Christmas in 1974, uses horror as a board to debate social topics of its time, including feminism, abortion, and alcoholism. Utilizing the killer calling from inside the house gimmick, Black Christmas is visually and thematically a precursor to John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978, as young women are terrorized in a previously safe environment during an iconic holiday. Like Halloween, Clark's film opens with a lengthy point of view, but it differs in the treatment of the killer's identity. Despite making a little over $4 million on a $620,000 budget, Black Christmas was initially criticized, with Variety complaining that it was a bloody senseless kill for kicks, flick that exploited unnecessary violence. Despite his modest initial box office run, the film has garnered critical reappraisal, with film historians noting its importance in the horror film genre, and some even citing it as the original slasher film. There we go. It took us 20 minutes, but we finally found out what the critics say is the original slasher film. Of course, this is all up for debate, as the original slasher film is a very personal thing. Yes, there are things that come from the 60s, and if you want to go back to plays or even something such as Edgar Allan Poe in a poem or a story, the slasher film is like Star Wars in a sense. Whatever one you were introduced to is always going to be the origin for you, be it, you know, episode 5 or episode 1 or... Halloween, or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or Black Christmas. Whatever one you saw first is always going to be your origin story. But I do want to know what your favorite slasher film is, and who do you think is the best horror killer, the best slasher out there? Is it the typical Jason, Freddy, or Michael, or do you have an obscure one that you like? I've always been a fan of Pumpkinhead. Whether he's a supernatural or a slasher, again, up for debate. But I want to know. So hit me up on Twitter with whatever you think is appropriate, whoever you think is the best, or whatever franchise you think is the best. I will continue this series next week, where I'll look into more of the golden age of horror, or the golden age of slashers, and then we'll continue on and see how far that takes us. I found a whole lot of information I really want to get through, but I don't want to rush it. So until next week, stay stabby.